This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads, and we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. So, Tracy, this weekend I was hanging out in another city with some friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a joke referencing the 1978 movie The Rabbit Test. Do you know that movie? Uh, I know of it, but I don't think I've ever seen it. <laughs> I will tell you a funny story after I tell you what the movie is about because uh, it evidences the mind of a child and how they process information. So in that movie, which is a comedy directed by the late, great Joan Rivers, uh, Billy Crystal stars as a man who gets pregnant. And the title is a joke based on the now outdated practice of using rabbits as part of a medical test to determine if a woman was pregnant. Now, this movie came out, like I said, in 78, so I was seven when it came Uh out. And I remember... um, I had said something like, I don't know if I had seen a poster or an ad or something, and I was like, rabbits? Like, I was excited to see this movie. And my siblings, who are all a good bit older than me, were like, oh, no, that movie's not for you. Because, of course, it was about sex and reproduction. Uh, But my perception as a seven-year-old was that it must be a terrifying horror movie. Oh. I didn't didn't know until I was in my 20s that it was a comedy. (laughs) I was like, no, it's like a scary sci-fi thriller is what I made up in my head. But. Well, and and based on everything I know of you, Holly, I was genuinely astonished when I got this email from you with this outline last night because it contains a number of things that are just not your bag. <laughs> right. Like talking about, you know, pregnancy and um, um, animal we're going to get to the animal testing thing. Yeah. In a minute. We have, a, we have our... our um, our opt-out discussion in a moment. But my point in all of this is that I had had mentioned this movie to friends, and those friends are all a, a bit younger than my husband and I are, and they had never heard of the movie, and they had never heard of the use of rabbits in pregnancy testing. And I was trying to explain this to them with my not scientific knowledge, and their eyes got really big, and they seemed completely incredulous and thought maybe I was pulling one over on them. So, um... 
I was like, well, I know what I want to work on next, and it's this, because (laughs) I thought everybody knew. They don't. Uh, If you also listen to the podcast Sawbones, and you should, they actually did an an episode on the history of pregnancy testing, and it mentions the rabbit test very briefly, but it's really more of a broad overview of how uh, pregnancy testing has evolved over the centuries. And we are instead going to look really closely at how this particular test and one very like it both were developed in the 20th century. So you may have surmised already, but heads up, this episode is going to involve a significant amount of discussion of animals being used in medical testing with an outcome of mortality for the animal in most cases. Um, So if that is something that you would rather not hear about or rather not perhaps share with younger history buffs, you can tap right out of this one. Yeah. Yeah. I... I still have a whole layer of surprise of, like, <laughs> well, I love science. I know you do. It just seems like, you know, you're talking about the movie coming across as a terrifying horror movie. I feel like this subject is, like, a Holly terrifying horror movie. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, not me having a child. No, And no. it doesn't really talk about, like, any of the actual pregnancy, just the pathology and medical testing. So right. I think that's why it's a little easier for me. Mm-hmm to to <laughs> dig in on. And some, I don't know why I seem to be able to handle this particular discussion of animal testing. Yeah. We'll yeah. see. I could start crying halfway through. We'll <laughs> see how it goes. It's always different typing it than it is saying it. But It's definitely one of those subjects that is always on, like, the, the right of first refusal list when I'm thinking of things to talk about. So, <laughs> uh, today, home pregnancy tests, they're inexpensive, very common, Usually the first way people find out if they are pregnant, just go to the store and pick one up. But there have been plenty of folk medicine tests that people could try on their own over the years before there were actual working pregnancy tests. And for a scientific confirmation of that pregnancy up until the 70s, you pretty much had to go to the doctor. You couldn't just pick up a home test. The use of urine to test for pregnancy was nothing new at all. It had been part of how people tested for pregnancy for centuries. Yeah, people had intuited that there was something going on with urine where uh, it was a a way to determine if someone was in fact carrying a child, but they were not necessarily rooted in science always. They involved things like, you know, peeing on grain and seeing if it sprouted oh, yeah. or turned color. Or, <laughs> so, but a, a really major development took place in 1902 when E.H. Starling, who was a physician, and W.M. Bayliss, who was a physiologist, discovered secretin. And secretin is a polypeptide that is made up of more than two dozen amino acids. But what is really important is that it was the first hormone ever discovered. Secretin is a digestive hormone. It has nothing to do specifically with reproduction, and Starling didn't start using the word hormone for several years. He first introduced it into medical nomenclature in a lecture that he gave at London's Royal College of Physicians in 1905 titled On the Chemical Correlation of the Functions of the Body. And in that lecture, Starling defined hormones as, quote, the chemical messengers which speeding from cell to cell along the bloodstream may coordinate the activities and growth of different parts of the body. And from the point where he established the term, all manner of discovery and research in the field of hormones began. Yeah, and that's still the pretty basic definition that you learn of what a hormone is in school. Yeah. At a very basic level. So from the 19-teens, a number of researchers were examining the link between hormones and pregnancy. 
through the introduction of extracts of human placenta into other animals in a variety of laboratory experiments, it became clear that there were hormones in the mix that were related to reproduction. All of this sounds so obvious now, but at the time... (laughs) (laughs) I know, I think about, like, the shorthand of how people just attribute, like, people's urge to, uh, you know, have romantic involvement with one another, they'll just go, oh, hormones. But, like, at the time, this was, like, mind-blowing concept that that was what was driving your romantic interest. Yeah, and the hormone that was eventually identified in all of this was human chorionic gonadotropin, which is more commonly known as HCG, and that was the hormone that unlocked the door to pregnancy testing. So just for a little bit of clarity, but not too much because uh, I'm not going to give you the hard science because I will mess something up. But HCG is actually four independent molecules which each have their own functions and which are produced by separate cells. HCG is not only used as an indicator of pregnancy. Certain cancers can also be detected based on tests which analyze HCG content in a person's uh, bloodstream. And HCG is present in women even when they are not pregnant, although it's a pretty small amount. They don't produce significant amounts unless they are carrying a child. But pregnancy tests are designed to measure the levels of HCG, and once that passes a certain threshold, it is a reliable indicator of pregnancy. In 1926, two German doctors, Selmer Oschheim and Bernhard Zondek, developed a pregnancy test that used mice. The preparation was described in a 1930 article in the journal California and Western Medicine by authors Herbert M. Evans, M.D. and Miriam E. Simpson, M.D., as follows. The morning urine is sent into the laboratory in clean bottles. They, meaning Ashaim and Zondek, recommend the addition of one drop of trichresol per 25 cubic centimeters of urine if it is necessary for the sample to be sent by mail. A group of five mice, each weighing six to eight grams, is used to test each urine specimen. So the mortality rate for mice just to test a single person's sample was quite high at that point. But per Evans and Simpson, this test was far more reliable than any other options, and it produced results in as few as four days. It worked because the urine sample, which was injected into very young mice in a specified regimen, it was multiple injections over the course of several days, would catalyze sexual maturation in the mice if the urine was from a pregnant woman. On the fifth day, between 96 and 100 hours after the start of the injection process, the mice were killed and then necropsied. Based on an examination of the mice's ovaries, a doctor could determine if the woman who had given the urine sample was pregnant. If the ovaries remained mostly small and smooth, the test was negative, but if there was enlargement and maturation beyond the normal development, it was positive. Ashim and Zondek also developed a variation on this test for cases where someone might more urgently need to know if they were pregnant, although it came at a cost of more mice. They used more mice in the experiment, and then they dissected them earlier in the 60 to 70 hour range past when they had begun the testing. That larger sample set made up for the shorter testing period. We are about to talk about a little variation on the method that they developed, but first we'll pause and have a quick word from one of the sponsors that keeps the show going. 
Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at three o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. Other doctors took the work of the German team and the Aschheim-Zondek test, which was often abbreviated to just be called the AZ test, and they made slight tweaks to the method for what worked best for their laboratory situation and their staff. At the University of California at Berkeley in the late 1920s, researchers opted to use six rats for the procedure rather than mice, and they stored the urine samples at freezing temperature before injection. They, of course, heated it back up so that the, the animals would not go into shock after the injection. Using rats was actually more cost-intensive than mice, but UC Berkeley had already had an established rat colony for use in their labs. The primary benefit in using rats instead of mice was the fact that all of the rats usually survived the test, at least the injection and sort of incubation portion of the test. But in mouse-based testing, 15% of the rodents died before they reached that day five examination stage. In both tests, the error rate was quite small, between 1 and 2%. And according to data collected in Asheim and Zondek's lab, this test was also quite good at early detection. There were recorded instances of positive results before any other clinical signs of pregnancy were present. For example, just three to four days after the patient had missed a menstrual period. Results were most reliable, though, in cases of normal pregnancy. So in instances of more problematic situations like a tubal pregnancy, the results were, according to the German doctor's data, slightly less accurate. This was at a time in medical science when diagnostic tests weren't always common practice in Western medicine, and they certainly weren't common specifically for women. Additionally, a lot of doctors felt as though it was extraneous. They trusted their experience and diagnostic abilities to determine if someone was pregnant or not. There was concern that testing labs removed the relationship and the trust between the doctor and the patient. Yeah, this was particularly a problem um, 
in Great Britain, I was reading one article that um, mentioned that this one particular lab in Edinburgh had started taking mail-in samples, and people were like, but they're bypassing their doctors just to do a direct thing. Um, there were a lot of a lot of concerns. And this is at a point where there was insurance in Great Britain, but it, it didn't always cover women, and it certainly didn't cover them just wanting to find out if they were pregnant. That was usually mm-hmm. only for, like, an emergency, which we'll talk about. Additionally, most of the time, most women suspected they were pregnant already, and they went to their doctor just to confirm what they already thought. And family practitioners used this as evidence that there was not a real need for such tests to become mainstream. In most cases, unless there was an urgent medical need to know if a woman was pregnant, health organizations and insurance companies, where they existed, because insurance didn't really start until the late 1920s, uh, were unlikely to approve coverage for the cost of the test. Testing samples sent through the mail was particularly looked down upon, as we just sort of alluded to. It was referred to as postal pathology. That's a a criticism that still exists today with all the various things that you can test at home and kind of mail away. Yep. Uh, But this test was recognized for its efficacy, and it became more and more commonly administered. Both Selmar Asheim and Bernard Zondek were Jewish, and both of them chose to leave Germany. I say chose, but they really had to for their lives. In 1933, as the Nazi party uh, came into power, and they left their lab behind in the process. In 1931, the landscape for pregnancy testing shifted when a similar test to the AZ test was introduced at the University of Pennsylvania by Maurice Harold Friedman and Maxwell Edward Lapham. Friedman, who was born on October 27, 1903 in Gary, Indiana, had been with the University of Pennsylvania as a faculty member since 1928. He had earned his bachelor's degree, Ph.D., and M.D. at the University of Chicago starting in 1919, so he went into his undergrad at just 16. Uh, So he was still quite young when he developed the rabbit test. And Maxwell E. Lapham, who was born in Newfane, New York, was just three years older than his collaborator, and he was working at the university hospital at the time. In an article titled, A Simple Rapid Procedure for the Laboratory Diagnosis of Early Pregnancies in the March 1931 issue of the the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Friedman and Lapham wrote about their choice to move away from mice for their test, starting with a reference to the AZ test. It said, quote, yet this test, admirable though it is, has some distinct disadvantages, one of which may make it impractical in a laboratory or hospital not closely affiliated with some university or institute. To perform the Zondek-Ashheim test, it's essential to be in in a position to command a ready supply of immature mice weighing from six to eight grams. If a large breeding colony of mice is not easily available, some difficulty might be encountered in procuring suitable animals at a time a test is desired. Moreover, even if one had at hand enough of the immature mice to answer the calculated requirements for a given week, and for some reason or other, the number of samples submitted fell below expectations, the unused animals would soon mature beyond their usefulness so that another group of the immature animals would have to be gotten. Friedman and Lapham's test used rabbits instead of mice. And just as rats were more of a burden to support than mice, rabbits took a lot more effort and resources to keep in a lab setting. But there were some very significant benefits to rabbits over mice. For one, it required only one to two specimens rather than six. Aside from just the number of creatures harmed, this also just meant one or two necropsies rather than half a dozen. 
And unlike mice, rabbits only ovulate after mating. That meant they didn't need to use only very young animals. With mice, the very young specimens were used to avoid any confusion that might arise should a mouse just be developing a natural estrus cycle, which would look pretty similar to a positive result in the testing. As long as they knew the rabbit's history and it had been isolated because exposure to other female rabbits could cause estrus, it could stay viable as a test subject until it was needed instead of aging out of usefulness for testing purposes. But even if a rabbit had not been fully isolated, it could still potentially be used. Per Friedman and Lapham, quote, in case one has not had opportunity to isolate the rabbits for the desired period and it is found necessary to perform a test, it is safe to use a rabbit that has been isolated in the laboratory for only 8 or 10 days. Even if the rabbit in question had had coitus just before it was obtained, the corpora lutea of pregnancy or pseudopregnancy would then be at least 8 or 10 days old and could not be confused with the fresh corpora lutea or corpora hemorrhagica produced by the injections of an active urine. Briefly then, one may safely use all rabbits that are not demonstrably pregnant at the end of three weeks of isolation. Pathologists also found the rabbits easier to handle, and it was easier to administer injections into the veins of their ears. They could perform the necropsy without the need for a microscope or a magnifying glass because the results were observable to the naked eye rather than needing to be magnified. Yeah, that was not the case with mice where you had to look very closely at their tiny, tiny uh, organs. You could literally just do the necropsy and go, yep, this one is positive. But the big, big difference was that a rabbit test could be turned around in 48 hours rather than five days. While Lapham and Friedman tried a similar method of earlier necropsy that had been used in mice, as you remember, they had just upped the number of mice used and then did a, a, a test doing sort of pattern recognition at a shorter interval, they actually found the results uh, a lot less reliable when they tried a similar method in rabbits. We're about to get into the numbers involved in the research that Friedman and Lapham used to test their rabbit method, but first we will take a quick sponsor break. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Twenty Seven Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This new serialized podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. My new show covers the lives and sometimes mysterious deaths of famous musicians who died at the too soon age of 27. 
Season one will feature Jimi Hendrix, an artist whose short career burned fast and refuses to fade away. Jimi was born on the 27th day of November and died 27 years later. In between, he lived a fascinating and highly dramatic life filled with wild exploits. Just like Jim Morrison, just like Kurt Cobain, just like Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead's Pigpen, Robert Johnson, Amy Winehouse, The Rolling Stones, Brian Jones, and others who will all be featured in future seasons of The 27 Club. Season one of The 27 Club podcast on Jimi Hendrix, like all seasons of The 27 Club, contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears. To test their approach, the University of Pennsylvania team used 111 samples. Three samples were deemed too toxic to use in the test. And the specific nature of the toxicity is not described in the Friedman and Lapham paper. But a lab in Edinburgh, Scotland, which did quite a lot of pregnancy testing in the 1930s, described sometimes getting uh, samples of urine which were green because the women who had given them had used some sort of chemical means to try to avoid pregnancy. Those samples were lethal to mice, which was the testing animal that the Edinburgh lab used, so the test would not work. Friedman and Lappa mentioned a desire to find a way to handle so-called toxic samples, writing, quote, Zondek reports that about 6% of the samples submitted were too toxic to be handled, and to obviate this difficulty, he has devised a method by which these toxic urines may be made innocuous. Since the appearance of this paper, we have not encountered a sample with which to test this procedure. So, that left 108 samples for uh, the study. And 25 of those samples were from women who were in their last months of gestation. And all of their samples, as expected, yielded positive test results. 32 of the samples were from women who had gone to the clinic at the university hospital to determine if they were pregnant. 25 of them tested positive for pregnancy. And the research team was able to track 22 of those women to further verify that they had been pregnant, although not all of them carried those pregnancies to full term. The remaining three did not remain in contact with the study. There were 51 negative test results from this viable group of 108 samples. Two of those samples were from men, and 25 were from women in the hospital who were known to have been not pregnant at the time of testing, including several with conditions that might clinically present as looking pregnant without a test, like they had nausea or their abdomens were swollen, something like that. Yes, so they wanted to include people that they absolutely knew were not pregnant to prove that the test was accurate in both positive and negative, and also people who might be uh, told by a doctor who was just examining them that they were probably pregnant but were in fact not. 24 of the negative test results had been from women who had visited the clinic to determine if they were pregnant. And the study remained in contact with 18 of those patients, and they were verified as non-pregnant. That left 92 cases for which the doctors felt they had adequate data for the inclusion in the study's statistical analysis. And that left them with an error rate of zero. But in their paper, Friedman and Lapham wrote, it is likely that if we had more material, we might have encountered an error or two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they were not asserting that it was 100% effective all the time. Um, but of the 92 that, had been, that it had been pared down to after they... Uh, had to leave out the toxic urine samples and the ones that they lost track of. It was 100% accurate in that data. 
The Friedman-Lapham test was adopted more readily than its predecessor, the mouse version, in part because the AZ test had blazed a trail already. So people already had this idea that this test was worthwhile and and, uh, was accurate. And also, for all of the reasons that were laid out in the paper published by Friedman and Lapham, for example, hospitals found it much easier to set up a lab for a smaller number of rabbits than huge numbers of mice, which they would have to continually be breeding to get workable um, animals that they could use in testing, even though it was still more expensive to house a rabbit. And the reliability and the speedier assessment during necropsy made this test much more appealing as well. And as a bit of myth-busting, you may have heard the joke the rabbit died as a shorthand way to say that somebody's pregnant. And this has been a long, a long-standing misconception connected to this test. I think both Holly and I at some point have probably said that. <laughs> I know I have repeated that myth. So apologies to anyone that heard that from my lips. You got misinformation. Yeah, the positive test result. Uh, was not indicated by the rabbit dying. The rabbits had to be euthanized and necropsied. The positive test result was definitely not the cause of the death. Correct. And while the rabbit test was more popular than the mouse test that preceded it, there was another way to test for pregnancy that followed in the 1930s, so not very long after the rabbit test was introduced, called the frog test. And this one, introduced into Western medicine by British biologist Lancelot Hogben, didn't kill the test animal. Xenopus laevis frogs used in this test would begin ovulating and dropping eggs quite quickly after being injected with urine that contained HCG in the levels consistent with pregnancy. You will also sometimes hear this referred to as the Bufo test. Uh, that species was originally named Bufo laevis before the name changed to Xenopus. So these frogs displayed their results in mere hours compared to the days that it took with previous methods of mice and rabbits. And the same frog could be used for repeated testing since there wasn't a necropsy needed to confirm these results. Yeah, this is also one of those things uh, that has possibly led to some species integration in places it is not natural for it to exist. Um, because it appears at least based on what I read, that this really caused no harm to the frogs whatsoever. And so these labs would end up with lots and lots of frogs, and eventually (laughs) they would start letting some go. So they had originated in South Africa and then ended up (laughs) being let loose uh, outside of labs throughout the Western world. (laughs) We've done, uh, like, invasive species have come up on the show before, but I don't think I have ever heard of invasive pregnancy test frogs (laughs) invasive frogs that have have gone on to retire from being pregnancy testers. Uh, They also eventually realized that they could use male frogs as well, and they would basically release sperm, and they actually had a much faster test result than the female frogs. So both both, uh, males and females of the species ended up being used. But Hogman did not get to retain a clear claim to this discovery. While he had apparently suggested that uh, these frogs could be used to detect certain hormones in pregnant women, he didn't really land at the idea that the frogs could be used to design a pregnancy test, and he did not set up any of the testing around it. It was Hogman's student, Hillel Shapiro, and Shapiro's research partner, Harry Zwarenstein, who actually took the idea from theoretical to practical by designing and executing studies with the frogs. Of course, the frog test caught on because of its benefits over the other options, and it was used until the 1960s when pregnancy tests were developed that didn't involve the use of animals uh, at all. 
After that, home kits eventually hit the market in the 1970s, the first of which was called Predictor, and which took two hours to offer a result. These were a lot more convoluted than today's, where you just pee on a stick. If you have watched the Netflix series Glow, you've seen what one looks like. Yeah. Yeah, and I should say that they there were other tests being developed that did not involve animals before the 1960s, but they just, you know, had not reached a level of reliability that they could supplant these animal-based testing options. And as for the developers of the rabbit test, Maxwell E. Lapham wrote a book titled Maternity Care in Rural Communities in 1938, so later in that same decade after they introduced the rabbit test. The year before that, he had joined the faculty at Tulane University School of Medicine, and he actually stayed with Tulane until the end of his career. When he died at the age of 83, it was in Tulane University Hospital. And per his New York Times obituary, during his time as dean of the medical school, he had significantly bolstered the financing of the school's research program, taking it from $30,000 to $5.5 million, and that was basically just through grant money. Maurice Friedman moved to the Washington, D.C. area and worked for the Beltsville Agricultural Research Center. He served in the Army Air Force in World War II as a medical officer and opened a private practice after the war was over, specializing in internal medicine. He died of cancer in 1991 at the age of 87. And one of Dr. Friedman's more famous quotes regarding the rabbit test was, quote, it's highly reliable. The only more reliable test is to wait nine months. That seemed like a fun place to end it. Uh, since it is a little bit, uh, to me, it's very fascinating, but, we, you know, it does get into animal testing, which is not the f- most delightful topic. Uh, but it's an important part, I feel like, of our scientific um, history, particularly as it relates, obviously, to reproductive medicine. And it's something that people maybe don't realize, uh, that this was something that was that was not only commonplace, but it was also already being considered in terms of animal welfare. I know in Great Britain, they already had laws in place by the time the mouse test was being used about how animals could be used for medical testing. That was one of the other things that led to some of the debates around whether people should adopt the test. It was it was like, yes, but we're harming animals, and you would just realize you were pregnant in a couple weeks anyway, right? Um, so <laughs> there's a lot, of, a lot of interesting layers to it, and uh, it kind of evidences a discussion about animal rights that was happening, I think, earlier than we maybe think of it existing. Yeah. Well, and that conversation connects to something that listeners have asked us to talk about before, which is the um, the synthesis of insulin and how that was developed, um, which is like it's definitely on the very long topic idea list um, and also connects to some of those questions about uh, the ethics of, of animals in medicine. Yeah. Uh, I have a fun postcard from Barcelona. Oh, Nice. It is from our listener, Alex, uh, and I believe the other name on here is Tari, although I'm not positive. Uh, It's written very, very tiny, and it has been through international mail. But (laughs) Alex writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, hello from Barcelona. My wife and I are traveling Europe to celebrate her finishing her master's degree in graphic design. Congratulations. I have been meaning to come here since first learning about La Sagrada Familia in seventh grade, so this is something of a lifelong dream being fulfilled. By the way, I know you two love to shout out educators, so I would like to thank my middle school Spanish teacher, uh, I believe that's Senora Severa, for inspiring this trip and for being an incredible teacher. So, yes, of course, always, always my hat is off to educators. 
It was fortuitous timing for me to get to listen to your episode on Francisco Franco a few days before I left. I have always found the Spanish Civil War very interesting, but have only learned about it through fictional works such as Pan's Labyrinth and For Whom the Bell Tolls. I actually got to discuss Franco a little bit with a tour guide at a winery, and as a Catalan, he had an interesting perspective as well uh, about how the Franco regime banned the Catalan language and suppressed the culture. Anyway, thank you for the great show. So it's a beautiful, it's one of those um, a sort of wide postcards, and it's a really beautiful perspective on the Sagrada Familia uh, from inside, and it's just absolutely lovely. So thank you, thank you. Uh, again, I'm always wowed that people want to stop while they're traveling beautiful places and write us postcard. It's quite flattering. Yeah. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us pretty much everywhere on social media as Missed in History, and you can go to mistinhistory.com, which is our website, where you will find every episode of the show that has ever existed, as well as show notes for the ones that Tracy and I have worked on. If you would like to subscribe to this podcast, I highly encourage it. That would be great. You could do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Duman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tuman Bay.